The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you on this June 17th, 2020. We are going to talk about where we are with police reform, including Donald Trump's executive order on Tuesday. We're going to tell you a fun little tale about former presidential candidate and current Senate candidate John Hickenlooper and why he may not even win his party's primary. And we're going to have a great interview about police unions, something that we have spoken a a little bit about in the past. But in my opinion, police unions are very, very tricky because either party really wants to screw with them. The Republicans like police, and so therefore they are more friendly to a police union than they would another public sector union. And Democrats are very friendly with public sector unions like teachers and don't want to set a precedent that would affect them. We're going to get the whole layout a little bit later. But first... That's why they tried to do everything possible to take us out. But we're very tough to take out, aren't we? Very, very. Donald Trump will do a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Sunday. I will be there to cover it for you. Hopefully from inside, although I still haven't gotten any word on my press credential. So... That'll be TBD. We will have some eyes inside no matter what. That, 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 is, that is a fact. I, I, I will, we will, at the very least, we will interview somebody that was in there uh, to do it, and we will talk to people around, and we'll cover all the surrounding protests no matter what. I will be there to cover it. Hopefully, I'll be able to get inside. But that's not what we're talking about now. What we're talking about now are the facts on the ground. Because I believe this is a pivotal moment in this race that has been devoid of a lot of pivotal campaign moments. Which brings us to our first fact on the ground. The world sucks. If you ask the electorate, are you better off now than you were four years ago, you would likely fall over from the collective wind made of sighs and derisive laughter. Because the world sucks and Donald Trump is the president, Biden, his Democratic opponent, has an 8.5% lead in the real clear politics average. That's 1.5 points from the last time that I talked about this. And... He has done that effectively running the offense that the team that plays the Waterboys team in the movie The Waterboy plays. 
If you didn't see the movie The Water Boy starring Adam Sandler, The Water Boy plays linebacker and pretty much every time the other team tries to do anything on offense, The Water Boy forces a fumble and runs it back for a touchdown. So during the big game at the end, when the bad team decides that they have their strategy to beat The Water Boy, it's by not running an offense. Every single play, they kneel the ball down and assume that they can protect their lead if they don't give the water boy a chance to make a play. I don't like my new offense. Anywho, if you're the Trump team, you know a few things. If the world gets worse than it is right now, then you're probably screwed. But common logic dictates that it probably will get better question mark because of 2020 but if you're them you, you gotta kind of bank on that you know that what would otherwise be a head-to-head -head campaign by now and we'd be into very campaign things where they'd be holding events and they'd be criticizing when one person said a thing at the other event and there'd be rapid responses we'd be doing all the campaign stuff right now none of that has started you also know that your voters are more cavalier about reopening and let's broadly define that as leaving their house, then Biden's voters are. They're very skeptical. According to a Politico Harvard poll released May 21st, over 60% of Republicans said that they supported reopening non-essential businesses in their states, about double the 29% of Democrats who responded the same way. Half of independents said that those businesses should come back online. Now, since then, many of them have. Even in the slowest states in the union, like California, LA has dine-in restaurants and barbers open. It's only Slowpoke, Alameda County that will open outdoor dining on Friday, literally the day that I leave Alameda County. So, Knowing all that, let's now apply what we have laid out to what will happen. Trump returns to his power pitch on Saturday. The rally. It's likely going to be covered from start to finish by cable news. It will dominate the Sunday shows. But make no mistake, there is a ton writing on this. And let's start at the obvious. Health. We are at a precarious public opinion moment with COVID in America. We have a lot of reasons that do cross party lines for people to leave their house. These range from the civil rights moment of our age to getting rib tibs at Applebee's. The fact that people are leaving their house has led to an increase both in cases and in infection rates. The other thing complicating this is that the United States is, at this moment, by far the world's leader in coronavirus testing. We are 10 million tests above our closest competition, which would be Russia. And so, for a layperson, or let's say theoretically, 
a media that is by and large just kind of crunching numbers as they go to create narratives is a very tricky situation because now we're comparing numbers as testing is more ubiquitous to an era a couple months ago when testing was not nearly as ubiquitous and it was going almost exclusively to people that had COVID symptoms. I'm not saying anyone's done anything wrong here. I'm just saying that these are the kind of statistician issues that make people tune out about math. But we're not in that moment. We're not in the tune out about math period. We're in the find the numbers that match my personal political opinion period. And so things are getting heated. On the other side, deaths in the United States have continued to trend down even after segments of our country have been open for over a month to two months, depending on the state. Will that continue? We wait to see the answer, but an already politicized situation is about to get more so with one big loud event where even Donald Trump's harshest critics will be yelling and screaming about how he sold out an arena. Thank you very much. And we don't need Jay-Z to fill up arenas, you know. We do it the old-fashioned way. We do it the old-fashioned way, folks. We fill them up because you love what we're saying and you want to make America great again. That's about it. So what does this have to do with Joe Biden? Well, the Trump campaign, again, wants to change the conversation and put eyes on this matchup and not the world that surrounds it. They know they have an enthusiasm advantage and they want Biden to pay for it. They want to shame Hyde a Biden. Quote, the Trump campaign spokesman uh, Tim Murtaugh in a statement yesterday. This is obviously a tactic to help him, Biden, avoid errors and embarrassing lost trains of thought. Also, while conveniently preventing the press corps from asking him any questions in person, these events have been tightly controlled or covered by a press or a pool arrangement. At what point will Biden subject himself to the scrutiny American voters deserve when considering the next president of the United States? Biden will have an event tomorrow in Darby, Pennsylvania, And it will be with limited people and only pre-selected pool reporters. So here's how I see it. This event in Tulsa on Saturday and the surrounding protests are going to be the story of the weekend. And it will effectively reheat this specific presidential race. And here are the stakes for either candidate. If the current rise in cases and hospitalizations with COVID turn to deaths, then Biden looks smart for playing things prudent. His basement hiding is not cowardly. It's brave. However, if deaths continue to trail off and the virus is more visible but not as deadly, then Biden 
specifically with the counterweight of a big loud rally and promises of more in the future, will be pressured to do in-person events. And he will actually have to do them if the polls that he is currently guarding with his very, 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 very conservative strategy begin to erode. Then, then the schedulers who really, if, if, if I was to describe a, a, a scheduler, a political scheduler, imagine an ancient slave ship <laughs> with, with, with the guy with the whip and you're rowing. We elected officials are the ones that are rowing and, and they have nothing but hard, often yeah, I'm going to stop you right there, Hickenlooper. That's John Hickenlooper, uh, former governor of Colorado, former presidential candidate, current candidate for Colorado's Senate seat, currently held by a Republican. But boy, howdy. <laughs> a, a, a man who was thought to be a slam dunk to flip a red seat blue in the general may or may not get out of his primary challenge to issues arising as he faces the primary this month. The most recent is what you just heard, a new leaked clip where he compared the life of a politician to that of a slave on a slave ship. Hachi Machi. That's not good in any season. But while there are protests in the streets against systemic racism, having a lanky white politician casually joking about slave ships is a remarkably bad look. Add that to the fact that Hickenlooper was found to have two ethics violations while he was serving as governor. This came after a contentious back and forth where he refused to comply with a subpoena to testify. He had to defend his actions during the only debate between he and his primary challenger, Andrew Romanoff. These were allegations from a dark money Republican group that was formed two days before they made the allegations of the of the 57 allegations, two were found to be violations. As I started to say, one was a, a trip for economic development where I paid the airfare, the hotel. I thought all the meals, but evidently there were some meals I missed in ground transportation. And then the christening of the USS uh, Colorado. I take responsibility for these two violations. I respect the ethics committee. But again, remember, these are dark money attacks by Republicans who are going to attack me or whoever the Democrat uh, candidate is. Well, they're not going to attack me for breaking the state ethics law because I didn't. And I didn't defy a subpoena. I didn't get held in contempt. And I don't hold myself Thank you, Mr. Uh, above the law. Thank you, sir. <laughs> According to polls, Hickenlooper has a double-digit lead on Cory Gardner, the incumbent Republican. But Coloradans go to the polls to vote for the Democratic primary at the end of this month, June 30th. Update on where we are in terms of police reform. The House have put their bill uh, into committees this week, but today we officially had entered into record the GOP Senate's answer to police reform. This has been shepherded by Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate representing South Carolina. 
The GOP proposal is called the Justice Act. It includes incentives for police departments to ban chokeholds, more disclosure requirements about the use of force and no-knock warrants, as well as penalties for false reports. It also includes emergency grant programs for body cameras, makes lynching a federal hate crime, something that's been in the news a lot. So this is a concession, I guess, on, on that. And creates a commission to study the conditions facing black men and boys. Obviously, this is not as far reaching as the Democrat bill, but it does apparently have the backing of the president. So now the question becomes exactly how bad do the Democrats want to make a law that will be the gambit from not only Scott, but also cocaine Mitch. Do you want to shave down your bill so we can match our, our priorities here and get something signed and have the incentive of, do you want to get this done before July recess? Because right now, the, the Republicans in the Senate and Mitch McConnell have indicated that, you know, this will probably get done after July recess. Senator Tim Scott has pushed back on that, saying we have to meet our moment. But considering how savvy the GOP Senate leadership is, I would not be surprised if that is literally just a compressed time window to force the Democrats' hands on exactly how fast they want to actually do something. It appears the key dividing line here is literally the issue that we built our police brutality episode around a few weeks ago, qualified immunity. That is in the Democratic bill, the end of qualified immunity, that is. And... Scott and the Senate GOP has said it's a non-starter. So, how hard will the Democrats fight for qualified immunity? And when I look at the political vectors there, I really wonder how much the average citizen knows about what qualified immunity is. I know I didn't know about it until I did the episode on it. So in terms of thinking of what the Democrats would jettison to get something done, I kind of feel like, you know, if you want to do a home experiment, uh, talk to the most politically engaged person you know and say, what do you think about qualified immunity? Specifically, if they're Democratic partisans. Because if they come back and say, oh my God, this thing needs to end. We got to get diplomatic immunity, diplomatic qualified immunity out. No. Then the Democrats will have a harder time letting go of it. If they say, huh? Well, they might have an easier time. I asked... And you answered. I asked whether or not you guys would like an 
unbiased representative on the front lines of this presidential campaign. And not only did you respond by putting me out on the road for the beginning of the primaries, but you're going to do it again this weekend. In less than uh, 24 hours, 48 hours, I'm going to be heading out to Tulsa. I'm going to cover this rally. Then I got to come back and quarantine myself and get myself tested. And it costs money. But I'm very happy to do it. I'm very happy to make this my career. And I just want to make this one short and sweet. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's gone to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you to the over 940 people who are on our march to 1,000 patrons. Thank you. Our guest today is Daniel DeSalvo, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of political science at City College in New York. He is the author of Government Against Itself, Public Union Power and Its Consequences. Welcome to the show, Daniel. My pleasure to be with you. Obviously, a lot of conversation over the uh, last few days about uh, police and police reforms. The, the, The question that seems to be on everybody's mind is, what can we do? in this moment of tremendous pain, not only in America, but also worldwide. One of the things that's come up is police union, something that you are very knowledgeable about. So let's start with this basic question. What is a police union and does it differ from, let's say, an auto workers union or something, another union that people might be familiar with? Well, in in basic, no, it doesn't differ from another kind of union in state and local government or even in the the private sector, which means at at some point uh, all members of what's called the bargaining unit got together and voted in what's called a certification election to select a union as its representative. Once that union is selected, um, it then represents all the workers in that unit in collective bargaining which means negotiations with uh, the employers, in this case, the government employers, over three subjects mainly, which is pay, benefits, and work rules or working conditions. Okay. And, and are all police departments unionized, or, or is, that, uh, is there a national organization here, or is it patchwork state by state, city by city? It, it, it's federations, um, it's patchwork. Um, you have the local unions, like all unions in the public and the private sector organized as federations. They start out with the local union, which, let's say, represents police officers in New York City. But that might be part of then a larger state federation of a police benevolent association of New York State and building then up to a national association. Um most police departments in the country uh, are represented by unions. The rules vary um, across the country because this is rules set by state and local governments um, primarily, and police when are primarily state and local employees. All right, uh, let's let's pull back a little bit before we dig we, we drill down on on police unions specifically, but it. Whenever I've looked at the police union issue, it has seemed to be 
uh, or seem seem to me to be kind of a uniquely untouchable subject for politics because on the left, public sector unions, including teachers unions, are a very big part of what they want to protect to their voters. And on the conservative side, law and order is a big part of it and supporting police departments are a big a part a big part of that. Uh, from your perspective, is that part of what makes this uh, such a, a thorny subject to even delve into? Certainly. I mean, no politician, Democrat or Republican, uh, would like to campaign for office, uh, usually with the reput- reputation that they're soft on crime or weak on crime <laughs> and they, they're going to be outflanked by their opponent. So often support and endorsement by um, police officers associations or police officers unions is important, those kind of endorsements for shoring up a politician's reputation um, as being on the side of law enforcement, on the side of order. Um, going a little further than that, I would say, so that's that I think is a baseline thing for you know elected officials. Um, if you think more about the attitudes of liberals and conservatives to police unions. I think there's some blind spots on both sides. Uh, liberals tend to be a little more skeptical of, uh, of police in general and then police unions because they defend police officers, good and bad, um, even more so. And, and sometimes you can see and liberal commentators have an attitude towards police unions that that's sort of the, the bad proletariat. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a less of a cultural affinity. Conservatives, on the other hand, have been reluctant to criticize police unions for fear of that that criticism would be understood as criticism of the police, who they are generally have greater cultural affinity with and see as wanting to support. So the classic example of this was Scott Walker's Act 10 in Wisconsin, which dramatically changed um, collective bargaining law in in Wisconsin, uh, exempted uh, police. And that from was its, from its strictures. Yeah, and that was part of the 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 teachers union issue that that uh, uh, pushed for him to get recalled, if if I remember correctly, right? Those right, and the the law applied to the teachers unions, and they hated it, and yeah. they were instrumental in mobilizing the protests against the the recall election and and all of its aftermath. Gotcha, but but the but the cop union not touched by by that ruling, not touched. Gotcha. Whereas interestingly, in neighboring Ohio, which passed a law almost identical to Act 10 and almost at the same time, the police unions were included. And again, this was signed by Republican Governor John Kasich at the time. Well, there you form such a strong alliance between both public education and police unions that that law was then overturned in a referendum um, <laughs> in fairly short order. Gotcha. So so let's get into then the political power of, of police unions. It it's not something that I feel really peeks out into national politics all that much, but I get the sense from even just the beginning of this conversation that they wield tremendous power locally. That's right. I mean, you have to remember that public employees, police included, live in every state, county, and jurisdiction across the country. So in that sense, they form an important voting block. And you know, in some ways, it's an interesting contrast if you take police unions versus um, education unions, meaning the teachers unions. 
the police unions tend to focus their energies much more at the local level and are less uh, prominent players in our national politics, where everyone's very familiar with the teachers unions being a core supporter of the Democratic Party um, and playing a prominent national role. People could probably say who Randy Weingarten is, whereas her you know, national police unionist uh, counterpart is, you know, largely unknown. Um, in addition, police unions have been, uh, are more in a sense bipartisan, meaning they have uh, made political alliances with Democrats and Republicans at the local level. And, you know, even more broadly up through the national, national level, whereas the teachers unions tend to be overwhelmingly supportive of just the Democratic Party and not not as much the Republican Party or hardly at all, especially the NEA. What is the I mean, obviously, the, the, the police unions are going to represent you know police officers, and, and that is something that will curry favor with voters and politicians. But when a teacher's union is upset with things, they strike and now the kids can't go to school and, and that, you know, is their power. I, I can't remember offhand police strikes uh, of what do, do things ever break down to to that level uh, when it comes to uh, disputes between the unions and their and their government well there there are things don't break down quite to that level for the most part and this would include teachers public sector employees are not allowed to strike now there are some exceptions to this and in Chicago and elsewhere, and then these can be uh, illegal strikes. We had that big wave of teacher strikes, but if you actually look down, they, the union officials were calling them walkouts or other things because strikes themselves were, were illegal. And police often <laughs> do similar tactics, which is it's often called blue flu, meaning many police officers call in sick all on the same day. Um, police officers are less responsive to certain calls. Um, People sometimes use a technique or unions will use a technique called working to code, which means they follow the rule book to a T, which really slows everything down and makes um, things not not happen uh, very fast. And so uh, all of these techniques of you could say um, that are short of a strike, an official strike, but um, really put a lot of pressure on elected officials uh, to respond, uh, those can exist in the law enforcement context as well. Yeah, and, and and I guess but that that is the 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 difference is that it it seems like these are targeted to annoy or hamper officials in a way that may or may not leak its way through the press to the 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 modern or the the average citizen, right? Like these are these are there to annoy the people that they are trying to annoy. Yeah, they're really targeted in a more direct way at local officials. Who, and that's really where, you know, uh, their their bread is buttered. That's where the issue, the decisions in collective bargaining are going to be made over pay and benefits and especially, you know, work rules or job protections. All right. Now, now let's get into kind of why the, the police unions are sort of on the table right now. Uh the the issue that we have obviously spurning or uh, uh, exploding from the death of George Floyd is the idea of bad cops. Why are bad cops on the street? How many cops do we have that are bad? Are there ways that we can deal with these situations on a more proactive level as opposed to having a big explosion of of anger when something goes this kind of wrong? 
uh, police unions have found themselves in the crosshair. Why do police unions? Uh, why why are they at odds with uh, with some reformers right now? Well, the the job, remember, of of police unions, like all unions, is to negotiate contracts on the basis of these three subjects that we already mentioned. Now, that third subject, what are called working conditions or sometimes work rules, is here where the unions play a role in, in effect, setting up the way police organizations are run and especially the way misconduct is going to be handled because they're going to set up all of the work rules for how if a police officer is accused of misconduct, how is that going to be investigated? How is that going to be uh, a final decision going to be made um, for superiors or managers, chief police chiefs and so on to transfer discipline, whatever, any given officer. And police unions in this context have a legal responsibility to help enforce that contract for the life of the contract, which means they are charged, in effect, by law to defend all police officers, good and bad officers alike. And they also have an electoral incentive, police union leadership, because if they don't defend every cop um, as fully as they might, they'll face a leadership challenge in the next election because all the other other officers say, well, look, if they're not going to go to bat for that guy. What about when my when I have a problem? Right. There's a civilian complaint against me. And is the union going to be on my side defending me? And it's what's happened in many places is that the disciplinary procedures are so cumbersome and difficult that they offer such expensive protections to police officers that it really becomes very difficult to weed out bad cops. So the the idea being, you know, these these rules are as broad as they can negotiate them. And then the leadership will always defend the the worst apples the hardest because the, otherwise, you know, anybody who might have a more borderline call would say, well, if this is getting closer to the borderline, then I might be screwed if something comes down the pike for me. I, very well said. I mean, you have to remember here that the unions here are not doing this because they're bad people. They're doing it for two re- powerful reasons. One is a legal requirement to represent all members of a bargaining unit equally. They can't. Yeah. The leadership can't pick and choose. It's very difficult for them to do that. And second, they have an electoral incentive, meaning they could face a challenge if they didn't vigorously defend every uh, officer that they represent. The same is true as an analogy to teachers unions, teachers unions defend good teachers and bad teachers alike for the same reasons. And it's, you know, partly we see a lot of the same criticisms with some teachers unions that it's very, very hard to fire bad, sometimes, you know, uh, really, really, really bad uh, teachers because you have to defend everybody and, and there are protections in place, right? That's right. And the, and the steps required to fire a poor performer um, are quite extensive and require a lot of uh, a lot of paperwork, uh, labyrinthine procedures and documentation that many chiefs and principals and supervisors in the public sector labor context just don't want to bother to go through it. Right. Um, so that that's, I think, where the criticism right now is focused as far as the police unions are concerned. All right, before we get into how the police unions defend and, and, and on what grounds, uh, there is something that has kind of popped up in this specific George Floyd context, and that is the cops were fired very quickly. 
and and that was uh, a big deal was made about that because it seemed to be able to the, the prosecutors were able to move forward faster. If a cop is fired, are they no longer represented by the union or are they still dues paying members of the union, whether or not they're on the force? They, uh, in most cases, they would no longer be a member of the union. They're they're only a member insofar as they're an employee that's part of the collective bargaining union. So once they're fired, so let's take the police officer in Minneapolis or the officers charged now with murder and other crimes, they'll have to secure their own legal counsel because um, they are no longer police officers and therefore no longer entitled to union representation. I think the bigger point here is Many people said, well, the system is working. These guys did something uh, wrong. It was uh, horrible, and they were quickly fired. I think the issue that people want to raise is that's cold comfort you know, for the family of, course, of yeah. George Floyd and, and others. Really, the issue is you want a disciplinary system and management systems that work inside police forces that weed out the bad apples before something bad happens, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that's really what, what – people are calling for to see if there's ways that that can be changed. And and I think to that point, the officer with his knee on the back of George Floyd's neck had multiple complaints. I think it was 13 complaints. And yet he was still out there on the street uh, acting in a way that now has been deemed by the uh, attorney general of that of the state of Minnesota as second degree murder. Uh, what kind of ways do a police union shield a cop that has multiple complaints or disciplinary procedures brought against them? Well, in, in many ways, this is, goes to these, the procedures. It's who is making the complaint? Is it a civilian complaint uh, or is it a, uh, and is that an anonymous complaint or not anonymous? Then the complaint would have to be uh, investigated. Right. When how, what are the rules that uh, govern when an officer can be asked to be interviewed at what time uh, for how long with union uh, or legal representation present? Every question along the way here um, is, is this complaint legitimate? Now, police obviously are in a tricky situation. Right. They are charged and given granted substantial authority to use force in complex and difficult situations, right? So there's going to be complaints about police behavior um, that's almost inevitable by the nature of their jobs. Now, the question then becomes, are those complaints legitimate? And the legal language here is, can the complaints be sustained? Now, all of the investigatory procedures about whether a complaint is going to be sustained or not sustained are often governed by union contracts, or sometimes they're governed in part by state laws, state laws that have law law enforcement officers' bills of rights. And these can go all the way up to be appealed all the way up to arbitrators, which will often split the difference between the position of the police officer and the position of uh, the complaint. Right? So and this, all of these are offered as procedural protections for the officer so that even if you have a lot of complaints again, you show how many of those complaints have actually been sustained and then what action did management take uh, in light of that? And, and these protections uh, and I guess the strength of the unions are affected by whether or not the state is a right to work state. Is that correct? 
that can affect their political power okay. and their organizing power somewhat. Now, police unions are a little different. There's obviously everyone knows about, you know, uh, the solidarity that exists among law, law enforcement officers, which helps them overcome what is seen as the collective action problem that you can't charge. And no one can charge in the wake of the Janus decision by the Supreme Court two years ago, agency fees. But so you have fairly high participation in police unions, even in states like Texas and elsewhere where you don't have um, you didn't have as strong legal incentives for everyone to join the union. Um, many police officers look at the union as an insurance policy. Yeah. So. The bigger difference is that it probably in right to work states and now basically the entire public sector of state and local government is right to work. Um, but we haven't seen a major fall off in police union membership in part, I think, because they look at it as this insurance insurance policy. One of the things that we drew a circle around in an episode uh, when this first happened was the idea of either a national records database or even more coherent and searchable local databases for citizens to be able to see, citizens in the media to be able to see cops that have complaints against them or any kind of disciplinary procedures. Is that something that unions fight against? Uh, uh, or is that just something that public, uh, uh, you know, there hasn't been enough public pressure to establish? Unions have, for the most part, been deeply opposed to record keeping of uh, disciplinary uh, complaints and, and records um, to the such to the degree that many contracts, for example, um, even required the deletion of all disciplinary uh, of all complaints that were not sustained against officers every two years. So they have not been in favor of uh, substantial record keeping in this area at all. Wow. I mean, so that's something that I had come across, but I didn't know that that was so uniform that there's just a purging of records periodically. Well, not every union is able to win such provisions in their in their contracts, but that's been a, a fairly common goal um, is to get rid of those kind of disciplinary records um, at windows of time. All right. So let's say you are a citizen and you are engaged in your local government and you do believe that the police union has uh, uh, either, you know, for whatever reason, too much power and, and is not serving you, the taxpayer, in the way that you would like. How have people been able to criticize, curtail or uh, uh, work against the police union? Well, it's an uphill battle. That's for sure. The police have a lot of advantages. Um, I think things are uh, changing a bit today. I mean, I think, you know, the success stories that people point to look at, say, Camden, where they had to um, or other instances where, especially under the Obama administration, uh, pattern and practice investigations by the Department of Justice, meaning the intervention by the federal government. That's not really working from the uh, the lower level. But I think Many citizens, if you want to do something on the local level, have to see the conundrum that uh, politicians are put in by trying to uh, get into confrontations with the police unions. They don't want to alienate the police, especially mayors. Um, you can see that in many of these cities where these protests are occurring, we have uh, are in Democratic states with Democratic mayors. Um, 
and there's a little bit of a disconnect and a very tricky or fine line politically that the mayors need the police, right, because they do protect yeah. uh, a lot of good citizens. And at the other hand, um, they, so they need to defend uh, the police against uh, false or overzealous charges of activists. On the other hand, um, they do want to take on the police to um, help them improve these organizations um, and weed out the, the bad apples. Uh, has there been a, an example of a city challenging a police union? There have been some. It's very interesting. There was a, uh, one in Costa Mesa, California, where the, the union itself went to uh, extreme lengths. This was a dispute largely over pay and benefits, um, not, not so much work. Really. Costa Mesa, California, the, the union then hired private investigators um, to dig up the dirt and intimidate local city council people. Oh, geez. Well, that seems extreme. <laughs> uh, so. uh this is this is po- political hardball is is not uh, is 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 something that people should be ready for and that's may be part of the reluctance of some uh, elected officials to confront the unions at different points. How long are these contracts? Like how how quickly do you know politicians have to figure out how to renegotiate them? Most public sector contracts are usually in the three to five year range, so. This is another issue is you can have uh, you know, a, a terrible or tragic incident somewhere, um, but by the time the contract is up for renegotiation and the lawyers are sitting down in a hotel ballroom uh, to hammer out a new contract, the, the tragic incident is well in the rearview mirror and people have kind of forgotten about it. Um, so one could even imagine that as a, a tactic of union leadership today. They're under enormous pressure and scrutiny. But, you know, from some of them, their contracts won't be re- up for renegotiation for years. Um, yeah, you know, that that is an element that I've, I've the more I've delved into this and tried to wrap my head around it. It, it seems like both, you know, union leadership and uh, uh, people who work on the police force it in general, there's less of an incentive to kind of work with a politician because by and large, a politician's fates will rise and fall quicker and they will be out and a replacement will be in there far sooner than union leadership will be replaced or people that are, are running that police department will leave. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There's different time horizons is, are really at work here and they're not following, you could say, the electoral or the political cycle. Have we ever had this amount of attention on on a subject like police unions in the last 25 years, per se? Probably not. I would say this is the, the most intense national scrutiny, um, you know, headline stories in The New York Times and elsewhere um, that the police unions have received. Remember, it's important to recall that police unions really didn't take off in most places until um, the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so it's, it's not that, you know, it doesn't have a, a long history, although there are there was obviously going all the way back to the famous Boston police strike of 1919. You know, there have been collective action on the part of uh, organizations or police unions going back quite far, even into the 19th century. But as a, the the modern collective bargaining and unionization regime didn't really come into being until, you know, the late 1970s and really wasn't as fully established until the 1980s. Um, So we really haven't seen this kind of, and again, it's happened slowly at the local level without much national attention. So I think 
your point is well taken. This is probably the first and biggest moment of scrutiny of police unions that we've had. Well, what is there? Was there like an, an inciting incident to bring about uh, such a widespread adoption of unions in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties? Well, it was part of a larger uh, passage in the, especially in the nineteen sixties and seventies, of uh, collective bargaining for all state and local employees. So police were just part of a larger movement gotcha. as states with Wisconsin in 1959 um, and basically following a host of other states up to Illinois is kind of at the tail end of this adoption for a statewide collective bargaining statute in 1983, um, you know, a kind of movement, piecemeal, uh, different laws, different states, uh, but across that period of creating collective bargaining in state and local government and unionization as well. With somebody who is so well versed on this subject, do you see this as as a possible window for renegotiation or change uh, between governments and and police unions, or is this like so many issues just something that's going to come and go? It's very much possible. I mean, there's other dimensions to it which we haven't discussed, which aren't simply uh, just enshrined in the contracts and can be laid at the feet you know, of the, of the unions issue, which, you know, in many states, there's these law enforcement bills of rights, which establish a lot of disciplinary and management procedures. But it's certainly a moment that where there's enormous pressure. But again, the issue is there's not one single source um, where change is going to occur. So we, because of, again, the patchwork of our, uh, the U.S. federal system, you know, different states and different localities might respond quite differently. Um, and the range of reforms on the table, at least being discussed, uh, some include police unions. Some are, you know, more the the, the slogan of the protesters, def- defunding the police, meaning cutting the size of the of police departments. Um, you know, are quite different and don't touch quite on the collective bargaining dimension. So, it's a, probably a bit early uh, to say. You know, there's certainly it's a possibility, but there's a lot still on the table to be worked out before reforms are really going to take place and then where and how much those reforms take place remains to be seen. Yeah, it is kind of crazy to look at just the the wide sp- spectrum of solutions that have popped up after this. Obviously, there's tremendous motivation because you can see the people in the streets and that equals momentum and political power. But, you know, everything from the the eight can't wait, which is far more about training to defunding or abolishing the police, which is more of a a top down solution to stuff like this, where it's, uh, hey, let's let's look at collectively bargaining. It doesn't seem like there is one central focused beam that, uh, you know, people have coalesced around just yet. Yeah, I mean, that probably do, owes to the nature of the problem, which is reforming large organizations, you know, is very is difficult and slow. Um, you consider the New York City Police Department as 35,000 police officers. It's big. It's, it's a huge organization. Changing something like that, even a much smaller police force like that in Minneapolis is, you know, just 800 officers is still a big organization that has its culture and its you know, folkways and all these things are hard, hard to change. Organizational change isn't easy under the best of circumstances. So it's in some ways not surprising that there's a, a plethora of potential levers that people might want to try to use. 
All right, one final question, just because you did bring it up. The the defund the police uh, slogan has certainly gone mainstream. It's become a political wedge issue, like it seems like everything does, uh, specifically in an election year. Is that something guarded against in police union contracts, just the level of funding they get? Well, the 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 rates of pay for officers is is certainly established and many of their benefits health benefits and others are established in the union contracts most i guess if one where you get down to the there's maybe the simple minded idea that people are just going to city governments or something are just going to fire police officers and reduce uh their police forces that way um others look at you know maybe a little bit less draconian and maybe perhaps more realistic of they were going to reduce their number of officers by um, attrition, um, you know, as people retire and so on, they're not going to be, um, they're not going to hire new people to replace them. Um, and police forces would uh, decline uh, in that way. On the other hand, if you're thinking about defunding the police, one would also want to keep in mind that just to make it so complicated um, all the pension <laughs> obligations to police officers, which, you know, people are going to be paying, you know, as far as the eye can see. And so how some of these people retire, you're still going to be paying all that back backloaded compensation. Uh, so that's a, a whole nother dimension um, to this issue um, that one might want to consider. So it's, the slogan is, you know, has, has its power, but, uh, once one gets down into the weeds of what it would entail, um, it's it's a little bit. There's so many, uh, I guess, un- elements or aspects to it that haven't really been brought to the surface and fully discussed yet. Well, it's obviously something that we're going to be paying a lot of attention to. Uh, you know, I, I would say certainly at least into the coming weeks, and one would expect it would probably be something that we continue to talk about into the next few years. Uh, Daniel DeSalvo has been our guest who gave us a much better idea of all this. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of political science at City College, New York. He is the author of Government Against Itself, Public Union Power, and Its Consequences. Thank you so much, Daniel. My pleasure. And that will wrap it up for us this week. I want to thank my Titanic ten dollar tier apologies if i don't get some nicknames right uh uh because i i gotta send another thing out to you guys to get your nicknames because we've had some turnover but we're just gonna do first names here this week adam andrew archie brad brian chad your boy craig i remember that one kurt daily tech news show darren dld laser dustin emily frozen glenn wolf brand chili scoop herschel i poop my pants Jim, J. Milius, Lindsay, Logan, MacBook Pro, Mike, Miranda, Neil, Nick, Nomadic, Olin, and Angela, Paul, Peter, Richard, Robert, Stephen, The Gen, Thor, and Zach. You want to join their team? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder that you can get a bonus episode on Monday, a bonus episode on Thursday if you are at the $3 level. Although, heads up, we're probably going to change the schedule for this week only and move our Friday episode to our Monday episode. So the Monday episode is going to be a publicly available episode because I want to get all the stuff from Tulsa 
up as soon as possible. So, be forewarned that that's a thing that's going to happen. But everybody at the $3 level is still going to get two bonus episodes. Oh, by the way, I'm also live streaming on Twitch for free. And I got a great email today uh, about how uh, you guys didn't know that Twitch could do audio only. You can just listen to me as if I'm talk radio. If you're not into the whole watching me live on on camera thing, you just want to hear me the way that you hear me now as a podcast listener, go to your app store, download the Twitch app, follow Justin R. Young. It will give you an alert when I'm live, which is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And you can just listen audio only. It's perfect. Head on over there. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Get my newsletter, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five stories a day, mostly gifts, sometimes hot takes. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying that some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics, and I saw one show the other day that talked about politics, but this is the only program that dares talking about home. Live from Tulsa on Friday. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>